Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. And this is Gender, A Wider Lens, a podcast dedicated to the shifting concepts around gender in our contemporary culture. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we seek to open up the discourse around this hot-button issue. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Well, hello. We're back. We're back. We're back and it's I've February now. <laughs> yeah, I've missed you, Sasha. You know, we yeah. have our regular meetings and then we really didn't. We really didn't very much at I know. all. Chat yeah, if we felt very it. distant. You felt like some just far off lady in Ireland that I, I used to talk to every single week. So <laughs> it's nice to be back. We should have definitely connected during yeah. that break anyway, I, but we just got busy with our lives. <laughs> yeah. And I felt I felt it. I did feel it. I felt felt the difference. You know, yeah. it's, it can feel a bit relentless doing the podcast every week da, 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 and yet not doing it. I felt the lack of it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's nice to be back. How was your break? It was good. It was good. The usual family stuff at Christmas. Then um, hanging out a lot more with the kids and stuff. I've made a resolution, which I'm determined to keep, but um, I'm already failing at. But that doesn't mean it will be a failure to work less. That's what I want to do. Okay. I want to work less. It's hard. Thinking specifics about that or just broadly, like how are you doing broadly. it? Broadly, just trying to kind of say, right, that's it for today. Right, that's it for today. Okay. You know, leave the phone up in the room. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not bringing it downstairs. Um, but weirdly enough, when I stopped, this is a mad little thing. When I stopped working so much, kind of around New Year's, I suddenly started obsessively playing chess, like some sort of oh, freak. Stella. I oh know. my god! That's I know they're like all given out. Bo Henry on the kids. Adaptive coping mechanism. Total. You're d- distracting yourself with the most intense, aggressive game known to man. <laughs> like, what the hell am I doing? Like, it's moving from the frying pan into the fire. I was so disappointed with myself. And the kids and Henry both said, "Like, lose the chess. You're becoming a nightmare around it." Oh I'm my like, god! Well, I just want to start by saying. If you think chess is the most aggressive game known to man, you are quite innocent and adorable because there are much more aggressive games out there in the world, like rugby, uh, you know, football. You don't know chess if you say that. There is nothing more aggressive than chess. Nothing. I don't play chess, so I have no idea. It brings out, it brings out a killer in you. It brings out wow. the mad madness. Anyway, how was your break? Uh, my break was good. Um, I I also got to kind of s- step away from work. I traveled and visited family and, um, you know, had fun, ate a lot of great food. I also got food poisoning the day before New Year's. Oh. So I was in bed from, oh. I mean, I was in the bathroom for like six hours straight. And then I slept from, I would say, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. the next day. And so I missed all of New Year's. I was just, I was like shivering under blankets and every, and and the the fireworks were going off and kind of like, I was in a delirium of sleep, like hearing fireworks, but not really. So that was unfortunate. What was it? What was the food or where did it go? I I think it was a, a chicken tandoori. It was so delicious going down from like my favorite Indian restaurant in Florida. And I was really upset, but I'm not going to give up on the dish. I'm going to try it again one of these days, but just not anytime soon. But I mean, I don't want to make it sound like my break was terrible. That was a terrible day. But overall, I had a really great time and um, have just enjoyed, you know, just kind of stepping away from the daily routine of work. And it was really, really nice. Did I hear you say that you became a little less obsessed, like me, a little less obsessed with gender for a couple of days, maybe? Well, I mean, broadly speaking, I think I go through waves where, you know, I'm super absorbed and intense and constantly consuming information and thinking and taking notes about things I want to say. And like, I'm full of ideas. And then I go through periods of lull where I'm just like, I don't have the patience for this. And I just want to be in my real life, you know, and 
be in the tangible 3D world. So I definitely go through kind of cyclical phases like this. And that happens with me very commonly with a lot of things. A lot of interests that I have and passions that I have, I go through phases where my engagement is like really, really absorbed. And then other times when I, I just like right. don't have the patience, I guess is the best framing. But I don't know if that happens for you, but I'm in a weird space around that here. Um, and I think it's just because also, you know, being part of this world, which this is, we're going to talk about this today. It kind of puts you in like an advocacy role and yeah. you feel like you're fighting the mainstream all the time. And yeah. I don't, I don't have that kind of like fighter spirit in me. I mean, which may surprise listeners because people are always like, Oh, you're so brave. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I just say what I think is true, but I can't sustain that like fighter spirit for very long. I get really tired of it. I am a very go with the flow kind of person actually. So after a while in the kind of gender world where it's like, I want to hear your comments on this. And what do you think about the affirmative care model? I just get tired of constantly Conflict. being against something. You know yeah. what I mean? That's such do a you point. have that? I do. I'm re it's really resonating with me. And people would be surprised to think that about me as well. But like in company, I, I don't really want to argue a point. And if I think that they don't get gender my instinct is to avoid it. And if I'm yeah. out with my husband, I watch him. He's rabid. He's dying to bring it up. He's dying to throw it on the table and let's yeah. talk. And I'm like kind of often saying, just don't, just don't bring it up. I can see him circling in it. And I'm like, don't, because yeah. I haven't the energy. And then I feel bad because I think I should be speaking up and, you know, but it, it feels like such a thing to bring when you're in mainstream land yeah. to bring gender in. You're, you're going off piste. You're, you're going to take over the conversation for some time. It's bringing in something very, it's like saying, now let's talk about the war. Like, totally. Okay. Yeah. It's <laughs> a really intense topic. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I do have the very same when I'm out and about just socializing. I don't want to talk about it. I just, yeah. I just if at all possible, I don't want to. And yeah, yeah, that's awkward. Yeah, for sure. Well, Today, shall we jump into the episode? Mm, definitely. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, so we were kind of talking about how a lot of people, when they start looking into gender, it's very absorbing, you know, mm. and they get really interested and they want to get involved and they start reading and learning. And if you if you make any public statements, you start talking about gender, what happens is you get further sucked into it and sometimes you also get kind of exiled from other fields that you work in or aspects of your life or friend groups you're part of or whatever. And there are lots of different kinds of people who go through this. Of course, we've seen it with journalists. We've seen it with biologists, like look at a Colin Wright, for example, or, you know, so many people. But specifically, we were talking about therapists and how therapists try to straddle this line between like, oh, I want to maintain my old practice, which let's say was focused on BPD or on anxiety or OCD. And I also want to take some gender patients. And then they find themselves kind of like for lots of reasons, which we'll cover today, unable to do both. Yeah. And then you get into gender and you, you realize like, yes, there are some basic psychotherapy principles, which we use here. Very much so. But also these young people have a deeply held belief system, which is very rigid and recalcitrant to challenge. Many of them are indoctrinated. So if you're dealing with anxiety disorders or OCD, you're not necessarily dealing with indoctrination. So you get into gender and there's like a whole new can of worms that you've opened up that some therapists find very challenging. Uh, there's so much in what you said. For starters, just on the last thing you said, you're dealing often with an indoctrinated client. So therefore, that's that's the, the primary almost thing that you have to be aware of, that there's indoctrination here. And, the, and now from from there, I will unfold. But often people don't view it like that. They, they view it first with gender as opposed to indoctrination. And actually, they'd be better off. I think therapists would be better off. But as well as that, I think the therapists would be better off focusing on indoctrination rather than gender. But as well as that, we know from our listenership 
that if, and from our lovely emails and comments and stuff, so many therapists are messaging mm-hmm. us. And we also know from working, you know, in, in the field that not so many therapists are working in gender. So it's like I find so many of them, they, they write to me, let's say in Ireland, they write to me saying, I'd love to have a coffee if you come to Dublin. I'll, I'll come down to Burr if you want. They just want to talk to me about gender. Mm-hmm. They're a therapist and they might have one client or they might have, have had one client. They're afraid to go further and they've become kind of like kind of increasingly obsessed with it. And they can't quite mm-hmm. believe that they're obsessed mm-hmm. with it. And they don't know why they're obsessed with it. And suddenly they're seeking me out to talk to me about gender. And I know what they want to talk about. They just want to talk about, this is the strangest thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so there's all these therapists that are listening to us. And I think they're rightfully absorbed. I think it's a very, very compelling subject. I think a lot of people undermine it as a subject and mm-hmm. make it seem like it's very superficial when actually mm-hmm. it arguably mm-hmm. goes to the essence of, of what makes me me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there is a lot of depth in it and there's all sorts of other political aspects to it. But I think of myself, because that's the thing you began with. I I first got into gender. I did that film in 2018. And in my brain, I was going to go back and be a general psychotherapist. And I was determined I was going to stay and be a general th- psychotherapist. And I released a book on anxiety about five months. It's called Fragile. I always thought it got completely overshadowed by gender. But I released it about five months after my film. So the film came out in November and I think my, my book came out something like April in 2019. And I was determined that I was talking about anxiety. I was talking about anxiety. It was going to be anxiety. And just gender just kept on pulling me back. All the emails you get, all the conversations, mm-hmm. all the articles are so interesting that no matter how much I tried to <laughs> stay as a general psychotherapist, I couldn't. I just couldn't. It just, it was like, a, 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 almost like the tide pulling you. Yeah. It was just pulling me again and again and again towards gender. Everything I I ended up in was, I do a little bit of anxiety and then absolutely immerse myself in gender yeah. for hours, then a little yeah. bit more in anxiety. So I'm, I'm a living example of it. And I also think, you know, you can help me understand the cultural context in Ireland, but I also think for a lot of therapists that we meet, here in the U.S. and in Canada, a lot of people feel that, well, not feel that, recognize that starting to voice any thoughts about gender creates a kind of, they can end up on some sort of a blacklist where actually they can't be hired for anxiety or OCD or the other things in their practice. Like, I don't get the sense that that was precisely the case for you in Ireland, but here in the U.S., Therapists who start talking about gender are really marginalized and sidelined. Well, I I could have easily been, and I have been by certain, you know, Mm. RTE, the national broadcaster, don't touch me. And they used to have me all the time. While News Mm. Talk, the other radio station, have me, but they've taken their position on gender. So it it has evolved since 2018, 2019. At the time, they were taking me, but very much, and we're not talking about gender, Mrs. And then over Mm. the years... Then I became pigeonholed. I just, you know. And they you know, wanted the, to talk about gender. They eventually. wanted to talk about gender and they didn't touch me about other stuff. So I did. I kind of pigeonholed myself. I watched it happen in slow yeah. time. Other people, it seems to happen faster in other countries. But g- gender was was not big in, in Ireland in 2018, 2019. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't big. Now it is. Yeah. In my own experience, um, you know, what happened was I started my practice like at the time while I was still working in the middle school and I was taking patients at night, like after school and just kind of dipping my toe in the water. And originally when I set up my practice, I said that I work with gender and body image issues, but everybody contacting me was contacting me about gender. And I maybe had like one person contact me about body image issues. And so I saw how the need for the gender work was so much greater. Me too. Um, And of course, it was just not a saturated market because there were very few few therapists doing it. And in my real life, when I'm out about in the world and I say that I'm a therapist, a lot of people say, oh, my, you know, daughter is dealing with anxiety with friends. Can you see her? Like normal kind of common, let's say, (laughs) common issues. And of course, I, I don't take other patients at this point and I'm full anyway but but it is interesting to see how 
I started off willing to be somewhat broad, but it just it the the market kind of just drove me in that and direction. Because I was that's the same. Needed. Like for for every like I've always and I will always get emails about bullying. I wrote a book about bullying years ago, and for all the emails I get about anxiety and bullying, gender beats it twenty to one. Like yeah. There's no doubt yeah. about it. What is the issue that needs therapists? And that's why I, I wanted to do this episode that I I think there's an awful lot of therapists who aren't willing to work in it because they're scared. They're scared of being blacklisted. They're scared of being unpopular. They're scared of losing their job. They're scared of financial hit. They're scared of a lot of things. And some of them are true. And some of the some of them are missing huge opportunities as well, because it, it is a very, very compelling field. You can help people in a major way. And it's there's an awful lot of work in it. We need therapists. So, you know, I, I don't know. I I feel for them. Yeah. Well, this is the real dilemma, right? Because if people... S- so we, we know about a therapist who was had a very, very successful practice working in not gender at all and started yeah. making, you know, posts and, and commentary about gender related issues. And her following really blew up in a positive way. But her actual business in these adjacent fields really dried up and she was very much ostracized. So she kind of uh, felt it was unsustainable to keep talking about gender. And so, you know, this kind of raises this point that we touched on earlier, which is if you're going to dip your toe in the water, you might as well dive in (laughs) because, you know, in, especially in America in certain cities, it is kind of an either, or either you're dealing with gender almost full time or you're staying away from it altogether. And then, you know, you kind of have to make this decision and, and what we've encountered you know, Therapy First, formerly Geta, Therapy First yeah. is one of our sponsors for the show. And we have a lot of therapists who listen to the show who contact us all the time, just like that lady who contacted you, who say, you know, I I have a patient or a couple of patients or several patients and working with them is, is really different because mm-hmm. um, I feel like I can't really say what I think or challenge them or push back. And so when when therapists start to do this work, what you realize is like you're dealing with a different type of presenting problem and you can't necessarily approach it the same way. Now, our principles of psychotherapy are foundational and they are always informing the work. But in terms of how you interact with these patients, I have I have developed a completely different way of dealing with this that allows you to work with an indoctrinated person without kind of bursting their bubble too early. I think that's the challenge that a lot of therapists will 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 share that like, you know, I tried to just lay down some facts about reality, for example, and this blew up and it was it did not go well. And so there's a real kind of gentle approach that therapists have to take. And it's it takes time to figure that out. It does. And I'm really glad you're lifting this point because if a therapist comes and they think that they're going into the, the the usual context of therapy, which is somebody comes in, they might talk about their partner or about school or about something else, and then actually you think there's something else going on. You know what I mean? So you're you're going into the usual field of the gender or not gender of therapy, I'm just, of therapy. And you're fine and you're rolling along and you've got your suspicions about what's going down, but you're not bursting anybody's bubbles. You're letting them find their own way. And, you're, you know, you're, you're following their pace and watching the pace at the same time. And then um, you realize this person is completely indoctrinated. They're completely indoctrinated. And therefore, I need to be in a very different realm than what I would be if this person was maybe anorexic or something. Because if they were anorexic, I would be working along. They would be talking about their issues. And I would know, because I've worked in this field for so long, that there will be a day of a capitulation. There will be a day of, I think I have a problem. They'll come in, they'll be weak, they'll be distressed, and they'll say, I, I think I have a problem with food. or I, I, I've, got, I've got something to say, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. a, a very special and sad moment might be the same about alcohol it might be the same about OCD or panic but it's taken me over and I'm, I'm I now know you and trust you enough to know can we work on this because I've got something here and it's, yeah. it's frightening me 
And that's a very special moment in therapy. And we, we know it. And then we work with them. And it's very slow and we're rebuilding. That's not going to happen with gender. And so somebody who's working from that playbook is on the wrong book. And they need to be in a different book completely. And I think this is where you've really kind of led the field, Sasha. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, no, you're with an indoctrinated client who will never come in and say that. It's very much like, and I've had clients who are very religious and they're telling me, well, I did an Avena and I did this and I, I know God is going to come through about this. And I have to walk with that. And I can't say, mm-hmm. well, God doesn't mm-hmm. exist. I don't mm-hmm. think God, I can't do that. So they might be praying and they might be doing various different things and they can be quite elaborate so that they, for example, have a baby. And I'm like going, right. I can't puncture that, but I yeah. also have to stay in reality. And so this is a dual role that I have to take. And other people, because of the politicization of gender, people, therapists think that's fake. And I'm like, yeah, but it wouldn't be fake if they were religious. You yeah. would just accept that they are religious. And I'm yeah. like, who am I? Who am I to get yeah. in the way of their religion? So because I suppose I've definitely had quite a few very religious clients, it gave me the water to swim in. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That I, I, I could roll with it just thinking that's, that's, that's their coping mechanism. That's cool. Let's look at everything else. Is that yeah. kind of yeah. where you're... Yeah. Totally. And and actually, you and I recently did um, a kind of a workshop Webinar. slash consultation yeah. with CTA yeah. um, and we, cr- Critical Therapy Antidote, with several therapists there who brought a lot of questions that they have about, you know, patients they're seeing or like what happens if this patient type of patient comes in or not. And I thought that that analogy that you used, you, you shared it there, it was so good because when people have a strongly held belief, it's not up to us to tell them whether or not the belief is accurate. Yeah. And I think that's that's precisely where people get confused about affirming therapy versus not affirming therapy. True. You have to hold it gently. Yeah. And in the back of your mind as the clinician, you know, you keep that thought, okay, this person you know, maybe sees their breasts as the the root of all of her problems. I'm not going to point that out yet, but I'm going to store this for a time when intuitively it feels like the right moment or maybe something relevant comes in. Yeah, exactly. You kind of just keep it in your back pocket for the right moment. And meanwhile, you do not see it as your job to kind of like fact check every moment in therapy. That's not what the therapy is about. It's not a fact checking session. And particularly because a lot of these young people also have kind of autistic traits and they do tend to think in black and white ways. If you kind of challenge something like that, it could completely derail the entire conversation. Like maybe they were getting to something. And then if you interrupt that with a fact check, you might have lost the rest of the session. Now, sometimes that's the right move because you want the client to kind of let their wheels turn and think about that disruption, right? But I I do think there's a real, it's like a different pace that is required here. And it's very, very slow. It's very, very gentle. And you're kind of, as I said in the CTA meeting, you're almost playing a little bit of a detective, you're trying to understand what's going on without putting out your cards, without necessarily saying, here's what I think is going on. You're mm. really being gentle and slow. And I think having that approach, in my experience, I've been really fortunate to work with some clients on a very long-term basis. Sometimes there are moments where they come in and say, is all this gender stuff a way to make sense of this or that thing? Mm. And it, it's not going to happen in the first you know, year, but this, this can be the case if there's a, like a space of curiosity and like, like a radical acceptance of whatever they say without taking it literally. And I think like in my experience, I think therapists have a hard time when they come into the relationship in a way that's adversarial. These kids are already so defensive. They're so protective over their identity. And when therapists come in with a very kind of um, directive and and confrontational approach, it is not a recipe for success. And actually, this is also making me think about something I'd like to get your thoughts on. You know, a lot of other therapies, the explicit aim is to reduce the distress. Oh, but yeah. I find kids with gender dysphoria are protective 
over the distress. They want to have their gender dysphoria because it justifies their gender identity in a lot of ways. Now, I think kids are often experimenting with labels and looking at definitions first, then they adopt one, then they develop gender dysphoria. So I have noticed that this kind of goes in a backwards fashion, but a lot of kids don't actually want to get rid of their dysphoria and quote, become cis. Yeah, I think you're dead right. And something strange happens because I often think when I'm working with them, I'm thinking, I can see where you could be distressed, but you're not being distressed about that. And you're saying you're distressed about this when honestly, it's the, this is the gender dysphoria that they've manifested. And I'm like, I, I, I don't see the distress there, but I do see where there's lots of room for distress over in this part of your life. And they're like, in an, in an incredibly mm. disconnected manner, they're like, no, that's perfectly fine. No, that, that was fine when my parents did this. No, that was fine. And... I'm like, really? Really? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I often find no more than a disconnect from their body, which I often see, there's a disconnect from their emotions. And so, you know, there's a word for it. I can't think of it. Alexithymia or something. Alexithymia, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're not able to connect with your emotions, you're not really sure what's going down with you. And yeah. I find with those, and that could be the autism. I know there was a point, you know, when I started seeing teenager first, and I thought, actually, there's a certain type of young boy, especially if they're 12 or 13, I can't see them. They're, they're not connected with their emotions and they're sitting there blinking going, I don't know. <laughs> and they yeah. are just not there. And I realized you have to have a certain level of, of insight to benefit from psychotherapy. Yeah. And if you are somebody who has autism or who is not very connected with your emotions, you could easily be almost not insightful enough for therapy. And that will need, if you are, that could take quite some time for the therapist to say, okay, I'll work with this person, but I'm going to be building insight for the first year because they're not ready. So this is like pre-therapy really to get them there. Now, when parents realize that they're like, oh my God, it's going to go on and on and on and on. And I'm like, well, yeah, it it probably will. It probably Mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a shock. I think to therapy for therapists to hear that because they're, they're frightened to work in it. And, you know, I feel like I'm almost speaking out of two sides of my, my mouth because on one level I'm saying you should work in it. Honestly, it's 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 incredibly powerful and interesting. But at the same time, it is very, very, very difficult. I've never really, you know, I've never really experienced such a level of we cannot talk about, you know what I mean, censorship within the therapy mm. room. You know what I mean? So there is a level that yeah, it is it is exhausting sometimes. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Genspect and Therapy First. Genspect is an international organization committed to fostering a healthy approach to sex and gender. The team and members of Genspect strive to promote high-quality, evidence-based care for gender non-conforming individuals. Genspect is pleased to offer a non-medicalized approach to gender with their recently published Gender Framework, and they continue to hold conferences around the world. Visit genspect.org to learn more. Therapy First is a non-profit worldwide professional association of mental health providers who view psychotherapy as the appropriate first-line treatment for gender dysphoria. Therapy First supports psychotherapists working with gender dysphoric youth and young adults and offers public education on mental health and psychotherapy. Visit therapyfirst.org to learn more. Now back to the show. It's so it's so true. And I remember hearing Marcus Evans, the, the UK clinician who wrote that wonderful book, Gender Dysphoria, along with Sue Evans, his wife. I remember once he said something like, you know, when a patient comes in to therapy and says, we could talk about everything except this one thing. Uh-huh. It means that's the thing that really you should keep in your back pocket to, to come yeah. around to. And I guess the difference between, you know, Maybe it's the gender dysphoria. Maybe it's the indoctrination. Maybe it's also the profile of young person who's dealing with this. They do tend to have autistic traits. They tend to be incredibly sensitive. They tend to have emotional dysregulation issues. So maybe that's also why they are so touchy, right? But I think to think about Marcus Evans's comment, 
I would say, I'm going to remember that one thing that they said we can't talk about. And I'm not going to raise it right now. I'm going to say, oh, okay, let's talk about everything else. And then I might say, perhaps this is a topic we might come back to at some point later down the line. So it's that's what I mean about the pace. I find that you just have to take things a little bit slower. And the process of establishing trust is different too, especially I think working with adolescents because, you know, many times the parents are the ones encouraging them into therapy. So the, the client is already somewhat resistant to bonding with you. That's not always true. Sometimes the kid's thrilled and begging for therapy and they come in with like a long list of topics and they want to say everything, but sometimes it's not. And they're very reserved and they, they are struggling to identify their emotions. And so, you know, you really have to build up a strong rapport before you start veering into those challenging topics. Um, and, I think therapists should also, if they are kind of unsure whether or not to wade into these waters, I would say, you know, trust the process. As a clinician, every client you have teaches you things. Every therapy session you have teaches you things. And hopefully we're always growing and improving our skills. And so even if you run into some you know, therapy sessions where you have no idea what to say, no idea what to do, or you say the wrong thing and you realize, okay, I could have selected a much better reflection or whatever. That's okay. It's part of the process. And, you know, frankly, I, I don't know if there's ever a level of competence that we reach, that we go into therapy with a hundred percent certainty that everything we say and do is going to be most helpful. That's just not how it works. We're a human being dealing with another human being and our personalities interact and sometimes clash. And I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that happens in a session. So I, I know, you know, a lot of therapists feel ill-equipped, but you will learn a lot in this work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, very powerful work. I think, um, what was the word I was going to say? You know, Jonathan Shedler on, on Twitter, mm-hmm. he's a therapist mm-hmm. and he talks a lot about, you know, the process and the psychological process. And, you know, he, he always gets me thinking, I don't agree with everything, but he certainly, he, he gets my brain going, if you follow yeah, me, because he, he, he's very challenging. He's very forthright. And uh, like, he's kind of shouting at us, us therapists, you're doing it wrong. But mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting when he does talk like that, because it reminds me that we need to value the therapeutic process. Yeah. And the, you, you nailed it earlier when you said the reduction in symptoms. You know what I mean? Sometimes we can be very absorbed in the reduction of symptoms. And actually, that's not what we should be all about. I love and I think my biggest strength as a therapist is the relationship. I can build a relationship. I'm good at building. I get into it. I just kind of, I join them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. I, I know that's where I, my value is in therapy is I, I just want to get to know them on their deepest level. I just yeah. do. Yeah. And when you look at actually the evidence of psychotherapy, whether it's psychoanalysis or CBT or humanistic and all the different types of, of therapy that's out there, it's actually the relationship with the therapist is the thing that counts the most by yeah. far in a way. Yeah. And so if a therapist is worrying and they're listening and we're trying to sell them, come in, come into the black hole of gender. I think that uh, they should remember that if you can build a relationship with your client, you won't be going wrong because that relationship will give them a steady base. It'll, it'll be a safe harbor for them to find themselves. And that's what we offer. I think I think that's actually very valuable. Yeah. That that's so true. And I mean, in, in the CTA meeting, you could really sense that some clinicians had built a very strong relationship with their patient. And when that's the case, you almost kind of intuitively will figure out what to do about the gender. Whereas if you're very focused on like the labels and the definitions and the, you know, language and the, you know, um, forced compelled speech issue, you will have a hard time building the relationship and then you'll lose touch with what your kind of instinctive knowing (laughs) tells you in therapy sessions it's funny i often thought of this up in the north of ireland i I, you know i often thought i wonder what it would have been like being a therapist up the north and effectively you would have had catholic therapists for catholic 
clients and Protestant therapists for Protestant clients. And there wouldn't have been a, a crossover. Wow. And yet, yeah. And it would have been very, very interesting had there been, if you follow me. Sure. It would have, yeah. But that's what it must be like all over the world. There must be kind of, you know, segregated communities and you go to one or you go to the other and you're not. And this is a little bit like a Protestant therapist and a, a Catholic client working together. Yeah. And that is really you know it's hard yeah because it's different belief systems and different worldviews I want to come back to that I I wonder if we could take a couple of minutes we maybe should have done this earlier but to tell our listeners about our new sub stack oh yes well done Sasha good (laughs) woman I totally (laughs) forgot earlier but so you know those of you listening you may know we used to have a listener community on Patreon and we have completely Thanks to the help of our team, we've completely our fabulous moved, team. Yeah, a lot of work over the holidays. Moved everything into our Substack, and we have some kind of new offerings there. So, of course, you could just join our Substack for free, and you'll have access to you know the transcripts which we had before and all of our weekly episodes. Um, but then there are also a couple of offerings for paid members. So, if you become part of our kind of first tier of membership, you'll have All of our bonus content, which is like the dinner party conversations, the extended episodes and um, access to kind of like future exclusive content, which we produce weekly. And there's discussions there. And I mean, as you know, we have some amazing listeners and they write incredible comments, very thoughtful, lots of great episode ideas in there. So you can kind of participate. And then we have a new founding members section, which is really cool. So if you become a founding member, you'll get advanced notice about who's coming up the following month. And you can submit questions that we may be able to ask the guest. So if there's a guest coming on that you particularly love and you're really interested in what they think about this or that thing, your founding member membership could give you access to posing those questions to them. And, you know, you'll also know about events that we're doing early in webinars and, and things like that. Yeah. Substack is a very interesting kind of concept. This whole concept of indie independent media, it's kind of freed people like us to kind of be able to publish our thoughts. And it's, it's been a revolution when you look at like, you know, people like Eliza Mondegreen and Lisa Salen Davis, Colin Wright, obviously yeah. Helen Joyce, Abigail Schreier's Substack is phenomenal. Michael Schellenberger's is massive. Like mm-hmm. there's so many Substacks now, obviously Jesse Single and Blocked and Reported and stuff that it's, it's a whole kind of revolution. It happened in music in the 1980s where basically the musicians took power and said, we're going to release our own music, and it became indie music. And now it's indie media. It's like, we're going to release our own media, thank you very much. And Substack has become the platform. And it's perfect for our podcast. We're we're, we're among our friends. It really does feel like a community. And I think it's, I've kind of, I've really been sold into this way. You know the way kind of social media can be very rat-a-tat, and it can be very... Mm -hmm. Oh, it can be very bitty and bad for the brain, I think. It's something yeah. about it, very fragmented, that's the word. While if you're in Substack, it's a much cleaner vibe and you're just reading different people's articles. It's a much calmer, cleaner. I really am quite evangelical about it. I think, obviously, I've got my own Substack and I'm really into it. I just find it, it's, it's, I've found my place, I've found my home. I used to be over on Facebook then I got bored of Facebook, went over to Twitter, and it felt like I went from the community hall eating my buns and drinking my tea to going into a nightclub where they're all taking cocaine. I was like, it's wild. <laughs> so I hung out on Twitter for the last few years, and now I'm like this strung out wreck. <laughs> I've had enough of the nightlife of Twitter. And so now, <laughs> so now I'm in the clean living, thoughtful, and reflective space. <laughs> You're like coming down off of a a cocaine bender of Twitter. That's hilarious. Totally. totally. Wow. I had never thought of it that way. Well, this this movement has happened. I was, I didn't touch Twitter. I was all over Facebook and I didn't touch Facebook. And now I'm, I'm really leaving Twitter now and I'm over at Substack. It's just lovely. It's very pleasant place to be. Yeah. So yeah, I advise and recommend people to come on over to Substack. Come to our Substack, yes. Me and you did this 
very much to spread the word way back in 2020 or whenever we first started it. And, you know, we've done it and it's our labour of love and we do it and, you know, we're really into it. But like, if you do want to support us, we, we do put an awful lot of work into it. Our team puts yeah. an awful lot of work into it. And this is not where we make our money, not by mm-hmm. a long, long shot. And mm-hmm. so if anybody wants to recognise that, we would say thank you very much because yeah. it, it, it is something that we, we, we love doing it, but it takes a lot of time. There's no doubt about yeah. it. So we were talking earlier about what happens when a therapist and a client have very different worldviews. Yeah. And what's yeah. so interesting is that like, I remember being in graduate school and this was a very normal skill yeah. that is expected of therapists. It is not the first time that therapists have to hold their own personally held beliefs lightly while the client has a different set of personally held beliefs. Now, I think because the ideology and dogma has been shoved down people's throats so badly, it creates a very different dynamic. But if you can kind of process that and set it aside, I don't think it's new for therapists to have a client who maybe holds some beliefs that don't jive with with reality, with the, the therapist perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So in some ways, indoctrination is we we have the skills built in to to work with it, but I think sometimes it just needs to be explicated. And you know, I give some talks and, and workshops around this because I think sometimes flushing it out is challenging. Like, well, how does it look in practice? But I actually think therapists already have the skills to work with indoctrination. You're so right. And so often, like, let's say a client will come to me and they'll be working in a job that I would think, what are you doing in that job? God, or how are you living in that life? You know what I mean? I can think of one client who does this extraordinary um, commute. And I'm like, what? You know, yeah. that's insane. But it's nothing to do with me. It's absolutely yeah. nothing to do with me. It's their life. They, that, that I have to respect that their way of living is a very different way of living, very different demands than my way of living. And you live in that space. That's what a therapist mm-hmm. does. We enter into their space and we respect their space. And our job is to kind of spot the pattern, see where it's working, see where it's not. You know what I mean? Walk with them. But not, we don't have to agree with everything. There's an extraordinary culture that has kind of come. It came in like a rocket, something like 2015, along with gender and everything else that's mad about life these days, which is this presumption we all have to agree. Yeah. Like, crikey, it's yeah. mad. Yeah. We always disagree with our clients about lots of things because we're human. Yeah. But because it's so politicized because it's so controversial people think well how am i going to deal with the uh, with the pronoun issue or whatever and i'm like so deal with it with every other issue that you don't agree with your client with so deal it with with skill and yeah. and um with um empathy and you know you'll you'll get there if you're used to dealing with a client you'll be used to dealing with mm-hmm. not agreeing with the client but yeah. yeah it does feel like it's a it's a it's a hot topic the therapist circle and don't work in. Yeah. That's that's what I feel. I get these long emails that clearly have so much to say about gender. It's it's you know throbbing in their head, but they're not working in it. And that feels like massive missed opportunity. Yeah. Do you think that there are non-inflammatory ways that therapists can you know maybe talk to colleagues and things like that about this? Because Something that we were also talking about is just, you know, we're in a new year, we're in 2024, and a lot of people feel like gender has been such a silencing and, and for lack of a better term, marginalizing issue. Um, And I would love to give people listening, whether you're a therapist or a teacher or a parent, some, some kind of tools for how you can feel a little more confident or powerful um, and not feel so intimidated by this topic. And I think we've we've touched a little bit on how that looks in the context of a therapy session, right? How mm. do you approach this in a way that isn't so kind of conflictual or discombobulating? But what about therapists who say, you know, I'm in a practice with six other clinicians, for example, and I've tried to voice some of my concerns around this and it's gone really badly. 
I wonder, is there is there like a non-inflammatory way to raise these issues? It's kind of what dinner party conversations is yeah, about over on our Substack. But there, what do you think? I think there very definitely is. And I have a very definite answer, which I'm going to go for in a second about this. And I think it's something that we continuously avoid. And it's it's the the kind of the elephant in the room which is what is your understanding of gender dysphoria? And if, if you ask, let's say if you're in a clinic mm. and you ask the, the other therapist, so what, how do you understand gender dysphoria develops? And so yeah. they might give gender identity theory as how it develops. And then you'd answer, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I, you know, I know that theory well. Um, I have a different understanding of it. I come from a different school of thought. And you'd explain your own thought, which is more developmental model of understanding that you develop it maybe as a coping mechanism for distress in your life and um when you have put that dead dog on the table when you have actually said right that's actually what we're talking about it's in a very psychological manner Mm -hmm. and it's not combative because you first of all invited them to bet your bottom dollar so often with people they don't know that they're subscribing to gender identity theory they're kind of just presuming that this is the uh, the understanding of gender you know what I mean? They've kind of conflated it with being gay very often. This is how I read it. Yeah, They've conflated yeah. with being gay. They haven't thought about it a huge amount. And they're just nodding along, just thinking, yeah, it's, it's something in you. I haven't really thought about it, but yeah, it's something in you. And you just have to work with it and you have to affirm. And so, okay, so that means you're, you're, you're in the kind of gender identity school of thought. I get you. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting theory. And talk about it without shooting them down. So, well, yeah. I don't. You've got right. a pink essence. Lady brain, you don't start yelling about lady brain, but you just talk that's psychologically interesting. And, you know, I've I've traced the roots of of that theory. And, you know, it it is a very interesting theory because it goes to the essence of what makes me me. What makes me a woman? Is it because there's a there's an identity within me? And is that identity very similar to my personality? Is it similar? You know, what what is that? Is my identity, you know, like in other generations, Irish or Catholic or whatever? So what is my identity? So I would go quite psychologically with them. Yeah. And then allow them or invite it towards the end. Say, I have a very, I come from a very different school of thought, but I do find that interesting because it is interesting. There is an interesting kernel there. So uh, that's how I would go for it. And I just find it amazing. I watch, you know, reading Time to Think, Hannah Barnes' book, and the entire book, a full expose of Tavistock, and never once acknowledging that there is a fundamental two different ways of seeing gender dysphoria. And if you're in one camp, you're going to be for fast-track medicalization. And if you're in the other camp, you're probably not. Yeah. And and when I look at, you know, like the cast review, and I, just so you know, I don't know how many people would know this who are listening, but, you know, the jids at the Tavistock, it was going to close. It was going to close in March 23. Then it was, you know what I mean? It's, and obviously, it's a year later. It still hasn't closed. But it seems to be hitting roadblocks all over the place. And I'm like, they since the time that clinic started in 1989, they have never confronted that. Yeah. They've never confronted which school of thought are it's just clinicians are some just presumed to be kind of thinking about gender without actually acknowledging well how do you think it develops they're just always sidestep i just think it's missing the entire point i think it's we have to stop everything and discuss that and then we can go forward it just came to me you know what i think is happening i think okay clinicians assume that the interior life of a quote trans person is so alien and foreign that even though the theory they're being presented with via trainings and advocacy groups and psychological textbooks and stuff, even though they don't get it, they think, well, because I'm cis, I don't get it. I mean, of course I don't get it. I'm not trans. So yeah, this doesn't make a ton of sense. It's not super cohesive, but who am I to question this? Yeah. Um, and, and, And it's just fascinating because I think it, it perhaps indicates like a, a lack of confidence to be curious, to to be uh, well, trying to to genuinely, earnestly want to understand something, and um, it, it just what what you were talking about, like regarding how to address your colleague, just makes me think the value of 
asking genuine questions yeah. of saying, yeah. well, what's your understanding of gender dysphoria? It's very different to saying, well, did you know that blah, 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 percentage of kids are blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, that's a combative stance and I'm so guilty of it. Like I've done it so many times, but just asking a curious question gives people the chance to really think through it or say out loud what they think and maybe even recognize that they don't know what they're talking about. Can I take up on your point about being cis, being so exotic? I think this is key. I think people think, and especially, I, I maybe I'm wrong. I remember Helen Joyce once said it, and it really stuck in my mind, that especially for men, because men are so affectionate towards their genitals, they're like, anybody who would want to remove their genitals couldn't be a man. They couldn't be a man like I'm a man, so they must be a woman or something else. Do you know what I mean? I think that is really true. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about the fathers and where are the fathers in this. And I watch men when I'm talking about gender, there's a shutdown. And I think that's where their brain goes. And our genitals as women, you know, we have our breasts, but our genitals aren't outside our body. Yes. Or something. I think there's a just, it's totally. not as shockingly violent, if you follow me. Because our vaginas aren't kind of hanging out there. I know this is very graphic. No. But I actually think it's a key point that they just go. And I remember Michael Schellenberger said it recently because he's very much got into the mental health around homelessness. And he said, don't underestimate people's body horror. That they just go, shut down, can't think, stop. And I think this is what happens. And I think as well as that, um, there's a, a conflation with being gay. And I don't understand what, what it is like to, to, you know, to fancy this person and not fancy that. But I, you know what I mean? I, I know what I fancy. I, I'm, I fancy, I'm within the, what's the word, the usual. I'm within the majority because I fancy mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. And so I can see how the conflation happens mm-hmm. along with the body horror and the exotic kind of, I can't imagine doing that. Yeah. And so it just feels like such an unusual thing. They just think, I don't understand it. I must respect it. Rather than coming in with what you were saying, which is a genuine psychological curiosity of yeah. what's going down for you. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if we should maybe one day do an episode about asking questions. Like the, yeah. the therapeutic value and the cultural value of asking questions, not interrogation, because mm. that that happens a lot, but genuine questions. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I just yeah. think a lot about my uh, my approach to indoctrination and really a lot of what I'm doing is genuinely asking questions. I My first lecturer, and she really was phenomenal, um, Fiona was her name. She was my first lecturer in counselling. She was just a genius about questions. She just yeah. was all about curiosity, questions, yeah. just, yeah. you know, getting the right question will get everything. And so I think I was trained very well that's in awesome. that particular approach. Yeah. And I think I think it really does. It calms everybody down. If you ask somebody the right question, they go, well. Yes. And off yes. they go. And they're kind of finding their place. And you're getting to know them. It just works so well. And so for, for not only therapists, for parents or anybody who's there trying to get through to somebody, if you can get the right question without it being an interrogation, with it, it kind of being a curious. Now, it's hard because if you feel like saying so oh hard. my god what is going down yeah. yeah and instead you're trying to gently flick out a thought-provoking conversation inducing question it's a very yeah. different brain space totally and that's why we're lucky because we're sitting in a chair we're sitting back it's only for conversation because we're therapists that's why we're here so we're in a very special place that brings on conversation yeah. that in fairness nobody else is in but you know for therapists who are listening i think it's it's key yeah. To, to kind of unlocking things. Yeah. I think, you know, back to the question about like, how do we give people non-confrontational ways of raising this? I love your, I love your suggestion of asking questions. Another thing that comes to mind that I think can be helpful is to say, to talk a little bit about your own trajectory with things. Mm. So, you know, you might ask the question, you might say something like, you know, I also used to think that now, of course you have to be honest, right? But Mm. you might say like, when I first learned about gender, you know, I had this one patient and they, they really seemed like the typical case you'd imagine because a lot of therapists will say this, like I had one gender patient in 1997 
and they had gender dysphoria their whole mm-hmm. lives and they transitioned. They were pretty happy. You know, a lot of times it's a female mm-hmm. to male who was a lesbian who just got so tired of like all the discrimination. So it's really sad in a lot of ways. But, you know, then they'll say, but then I got a kid who came in who was very feminine, but she was saying she was a boy. And I, I was really confused, you know, so like if you can kind of describe your own evolution or thought process in a way that humanizes you, it can, it can perhaps change the perception of the other person from, oh, this is a caricature of some sort of like religious zealot who just believes in like God's perfect bodies born the right way versus, you know, like a, a, a clinician who's thinking and evaluating and trying to understand and, and grappling with questions and seeing things evolve. Or, you know, I, I was all on board with this until I, I learned about this detransitioner and I could not believe, you know, the, the kind of medical care they received. So it could be really helpful, I think, to rather than coming in with a hard stance saying, Oh, you know, I've really gone through an evolution here myself and here's where it started and here's where it's going or things like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's really difficult if you start out in a kind of political conversation. And unfortunately, as the political narratives infuse even more and more and more into gender, it's easy for people on either side to caricature the other side, if that makes yeah. sense. So well, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah it's I think there are two camps and they think, well, I shouldn't say they, but, you know, you could argue affirmative people think that we are bigoted and uh, that we, we just we're kind of anti-gay and anti-trans. and That we just want conformity and like, yeah, yeah traditional yeah. roles. So our job is to kind of humanize and kind of complexify the situation. But I, I had this kind of interaction with a journalist recently, which is kind of a salutary tale that I should have I should have declared the gender identity, gender dysphoria model earlier in the conversation. So I, I, I thought she had a very good understanding of gender. She was asking me questions back and forth. And then we kind of moved into email because she'd got the guts of the interview and we moved into email. And then she just finished with one last question. What would you do if, and it was a real throwaway, it was all done, she was very happy, it was all done. I said, what would you do if you met a a truly transgender child? And I was like, oh God. (laughs) And so then I gave a kind of a lengthy conversation about, well, the way I view gender dysphoria is, and I I think she was just stupefied by it, astonished Mm -hmm. by this, because Mm -hmm. she truly thinks that there is these truly transgender people in this world it's it, it was a really i don't know it was an eye opener for me but it made me realize we sometimes because well i anyway i'm in the weeds of gender so much i just forget just how many people just presume there is these trans people in the world and i think it has become incredibly pervasive you were saying an extraordinary uh story earlier about what you read in eliza mondegreen's a recent yeah. article which kind of is an indication, I'm sure you'll tell us now, but an indication of it has gone into the culture on a level that it's just really, really kind of, it has really entered the culture. And people to think that they're kind of going to get rid of trans and things like that, I, and I, I, I think they're, they're so on the wrong kind of level that there's, this has come in and it's, it's going to stay. I, I don't see this moving, but I think it has to move to a healthier place. It has yeah. to move to a deeper understanding. When people first heard about depression, they had a notion. When people first heard about alcoholism, like Bill, who started Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1930s, it was unbelievable what people's thoughts around alcoholism was. Like, it was just so mm. punitive. These are bad people with mm-hmm. bad thoughts mm-hmm. that need to be punished. That was the attitude in the 1930s. It was unbelievable. And so we've moved on in our understanding. The same with depression. People thought it was like... I don't know, that with a really askew version. But I think we have a job to do with public awareness and gender. And do tell us what you are reading about. It's a phenomenal mm. story. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so Eliza Mondegreen uh, had an article. This was from the summer of 2023. And it's called, it's a quote from something she read online in one of those communities. And the quote is, my friend's roommate gave me a shot of tea at a Barbie party 
now I'm questioning everything. And essentially it was a a young person who went to a Barbie themed party who I think was like questioning their identity, but was maybe non-binary or something like that and found her, it's a female, found herself in a conversation with a, a female to male person who had been transitioning medically for a couple of years and the, the FTM trans guy said, yeah, I'll answer any questions you have. So this girl was thrilled and just started like bombarding the trans guy with questions, questions, questions. And of course, throughout the conversation, she, quote, realized that she too was trans because they had so many similar experiences. Shocker. Two females with similar experiences. Wow. Chatting at a party. Asking yeah. Everything. It's turning into a slumber party. But yeah, I know. So then, you know, towards the end of the conversation, the trans guy says to her, well, you seem so excited. Do you want to try a shot of tea right now? I have some. And so he went and got his like little syringe and testosterone and injected her with tea. And she was elated. She felt powerful. She felt incredible. And she said, that was it. The next week I was at the gender clinic getting my own prescriptions. So, you know. And then the comments underneath Oh, yeah, me too. That's how I first started tea. I started tea at a party. Yeah, there were a couple people saying something like that. Of course, some comments were like, this is dangerous. These are powerful drugs. You shouldn't just mess with them willy-nilly. But then some people were saying, well, you seem happy. Who are we to judge, you know? I'd love yeah. to do a an episode on kind of toxic positivity and toxic empathy, but oh but the point God, yeah. is gender oh is God. in our world in a new way yeah. that is is here to stay and yeah. you know you and i will continue to follow all of the evolving it's like a rotating door of new consequences and phenomena that are evolving out of this thing and it's gonna keep changing but there's no putting it back in the box yeah and all that to say you know it's a fascinating and engrossing world we hope that people don't get sidelined from their old professions but if you are interested in the gender world and you're a therapist or any kind of professional or you want to learn more about it please don't hesitate to get involved because this is an important cultural topic and medical topic and psychological topic that we will be working in for a long time so yeah I I really want to add to that like that I think any therapist who's thinking, if they're very absorbed by it, I would encourage you, join in, you know, yeah. join, you know, join therapy, therapy first, first. Yeah. or have a look at Beyond Trans. We've got a directory of therapists and you're just working with detransitioners. So you might not feel the stakes are so high because you're just dealing with trauma. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a kind of, you don't feel like they're going to rush off and transition. So don't forget Beyond Trans is, a, mm-hmm. is another. And there's then Critical Therapy Antidote. They're an organization and they're they're very very thoughtful and then there's of course the thoughtful therapists in which the are based yeah. in the UK and they're a phenomenally lovely lovely group of people I have to say big hello to the thoughtful therapists I'm very fond of the thoughtful yes. therapists and when when you think about like in the 60s just to finish like when you think of it in the 60s there was all these psychedelic drugs and it it brought you know the you know, the doors of consciousness were being opened and all sorts of things. And then in the 80s and 90s, there was more of these kind of speedy type drugs and kind of mm. club drugs. And it was kind of dancey and all this. Yeah. Now, with the idea, this kind of black mirror scene of, of totally. tea being offered at the Barbie party, it's like identity drugs have now arrived. They are not going anywhere fast. Settle in. I'm sorry, but this is not going anywhere fast. This is going to be around for a long time. And so therapists who are looking at it, I think you inevitably are going to end up working in it. You'd be better off joining, like I say, something like Beyond Trans, where you're just starting off in the in the waters of trauma, which you, most therapists know how to work in. Yeah. And then move in slowly, maybe work with a few parents and then maybe start working with young people. There is a trajectory you can follow and there's training and stuff. There's a community in therapy first where they, they really look after the therapists and stuff like that. There's so much out there now. Yeah. I really want to encourage therapists. Contact us. We'll introduce you if you need to or go straight to therapy first or whatever. And you, you really will find a big community there. Yeah. We hope that that was instructive for, for listeners and you know parents and detransitioners anyone listening to us they often wonder like what the heck's going on with therapists and we hope this episode kind of shed a little bit of light you know you you brought up a very interesting point earlier uh sasha about 
how it, when it's to do with gender, the client often doesn't want to reduce the symptoms. In fact, they cling on to the symptoms. There's a whole psychology around going on, on about that. I think that could do with more discussion. I kind of flicked over it and actually I went, that's really interesting. So I'd like to discuss that more maybe maybe when we go into our, our bonus content. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I find that clients are very protective. They They don't want to relieve their dysphoria insofar as they won't be trans anymore. And many of them just really want to be trans. So if this is something you're interested in, we will go into it in much more detail in our sub stack. So please join us over there in our listener community and we will dive into that topic some more. Anyway, we we're glad to be back and we are excited for this season. We have some amazing guests mm. coming up. We have some really cool projects in the work. We're going to be talking to attorneys. We're going to be talking about all these detransition cases. We're going to be talking to Kathleen Stock. Like lots of big names and very interesting topics. Johnny Little John. All yeah, sorts of brilliant, lots of brilliant great people. Names. So yeah. we're looking forward to it. It was great to see you, Stella. You too. All right. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to visit us on Substack by going to widerlenspod.com. There you can join our listener community, access bonus content and resources, plus learn about additional ways to support the show. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.